friends, and welcome to another sermon in our series on the life of David and me. My name is Dan Forrest, and today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Before we get into the sermon, as always, we're going to start by watching a video clip. This one is from one of my favorite cartoons that I watched growing up. That's Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And uh, you're going to see what happens in this video clip, and then we're going to talk about it. Enjoy. Okay, if you've ever watched Scooby-Doo, you know this is how every episode of Scooby-Doo ends. There, throughout, this, throughout the episode, there's been something scary that's been going on. There's been some hijinks happening, usually a ghost or a crocodile in this case or other things. And the gang gets together and they solve who it is behind all these, these problems, why they're doing it. And at the end, they always have the big reveal. They take off the mask and we discover who the bad guy really is or who the bad girl is in this case. So this is known as the big reveal, in, and it happens in many uh, movies, especially when it comes to murder mysteries and whodunits. And it's really the climax of the movie, when at the end, the, uh, the lawyer or the police officer or the detective or the journalist or somebody points out who the bad guy is, who the bad girl is, who the, 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 the killers are, who the criminals are. The light is revealed, they're unmasked, and the big reveal happens, and it's oftentimes a big shock. You weren't expecting that person, boom, it's them. And this idea in Scooby-Doo of them taking the mask off is, is such a <laughs> such a meme, it's such one that people use all the time for different things. I found a couple that are kind of funny. Take a look at this unmasking, this big reveal that happens. Let's see who's really behind COVID-19. Zoom, busted. Or how about this one here? Time to find out who has been sabotaging my life. It's been me all along. Oh no. All right. Well, let's get into uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 because in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, this is where we get to see a big reveal where um, the detective comes in and busts somebody in their crime. So let's go ahead right into 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, things are already not starting off too great for David because, as it says here, this is normally a time when kings go off to war. And what's David doing? He is not going off to war. And instead, he is sending someone else. And you'll notice this word send or sent uh, many times throughout this story. And it's actually quite uh, telling of what's happening in the story. Because in this case here, David is the one who starts by sending. And this is showing that David really sees himself as the one in control of his life. He can do what he wants. He has all the power in the world. And so instead of going off to war, he sends Joab out with the king's men to do the fighting for him. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Once again, David is sending someone to find out about this girl. David is all-powerful, in control. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Okay, you notice a few times when David has sent others to go and do his bidding, but then at the end here, Bathsheba is the one who is sending a message to David. So what's going on here? This is um, a pretty terrible situation that David has put himself in. Instead of going out into war, he's stayed home, he's lazy, he's gotten complacent, and he goes up on the roof purposely, probably, to spy on people down below. And he sees Bathsheba bathing. She's doing this ritual uh, purification rite to, um, to help herself with her monthly uncleanness. David takes advantage of that, spies on her, and sends for her. Now, this story is one that uh, sometimes church people have gotten really messed up when they've, when they've preached it and taught it. And I really want to make something very clear here. Oftentimes, this story is, is portrayed as, a, as a, a parable about adultery, right? David is having adultery with Bathsheba. They're both, they're both committing sin. They're both um, committing adultery here. But Bathsheba doesn't really have the power to consent to say whether or not she really wants to sleep with David. David's the king. He's the all-powerful king. He's in control of everything. When he says something, he gets it. So when he sends for her, she can't really say no. If she were to say no, it would not be good for her. So I don't really think you can say this is a case of adultery. I think we got to just be blunt and honest. This is a case of rape. David has done something terrible. He has raped this woman. He has um, used his power and manipulation to take advantage of this woman for his own pleasure. This is not something that she was into, I would say, at all. And so the tables turn, though, at the very end when the woman is now sending the word back to David. I'm pregnant. Busted. What's going to happen? So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. David's still trying to control the situation here. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. David has an opportunity here. When Uriah comes, to be honest and say, look, I really did something terrible. I slept with your wife and she's pregnant now. I have to own up to that, face the music. But instead, David is not going to be honest. And David is going to try and trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife so that they think that that's the baby's father. It doesn't work, though, because Uriah is a much more noble man than David. And he refuses to sleep with his wife because he thinks to himself, all of my master servants haven't slept with their wives. Why do I get to? Well, this is, uh, we, we get this in this section too. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a milita military campaign? Why, why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? 
As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah's character is really coming through here. And it's remarkable because he's a Hittite. He's not even Jewish. And David, who's supposed to be the king, the one representing God to all of the Jewish people in all the world, does not have the same character as this man that David is trying to frame for all of his indiscretions. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So again, there's that send where David is really trying to control the situation. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk, trying again to get him to sleep with his wife. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Ah, oh, David. You're supposed to be a man of God here. You're supposed to be the king. Instead of coming clean at this point, it's clear Uriah is not going to do what David wants. Just confess, David. Just open up and be honest about what you've done. Nope. Can't face the truth. So he sends Joab to take Uriah and have him killed by backing away and allowing the army to fight and kill Uriah without any support. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David has effectively murdered Uriah, the man who he raped the wife of. Not only that, look at this story here. Some other men in David's army also fell. It wasn't just Uriah that suffered the consequences for David's selfish action. Also men in his own army, innocent men, have died. More innocent men. Uriah was totally innocent. Didn't deserve to die. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. and He instructed the messenger, When you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob, uh, Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. That's really the main message that he's trying to get across. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. But we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants on the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. David has just learned that his plan has backfired and killed other men, right? And his response, yeah, it happens. This is what happens when you go to war. No, David, not when you're the one who's causing it. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. and She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done 
displeased the Lord. So at this point, it can really seem like for David, gotten away with it. It's all good. Nothing, nothing can happen to me. Unfortunately, God sees everything. God knows what David has done. God knows what's really happening in the heart of David. He is not happy that David has let this go. So even though David feels like I'm in the clear, this line here at the end, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's a real cliffhanger for what's going to happen next. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now Nathan, he's Scooby-Doo in the gang. He's the detective in the whodunit story. He's Hercule Poirot in Agatha Christie novels. He's the one who's going to come and unmask who the real killer is. When Nathan came to him, he said, by the way, Nathan's actually just a prophet. <laughs> he, he isn't really a detective. They didn't really have those back then, I don't think at least. But he was a prophet of God. So this is going to be trouble because God's not happy and the Lord has sent Nathan. So once again, David is not the one sending this time. Bathsheba is not sending the message this time. This time, the Lord is stepping in and he is sending his man on the job. When Nathan came to David, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Nathan is telling David the story and, and David is totally clueless about what Nathan is talking about. Sounds like a nice little story. Well, not nice little story, but like a quaint little story of, of, of two people, a rich man and a poor man, and the rich man doing something really awful. And he's really tugging at David's heart because he knows that in his heart, David really is a moral, just, good king. And so he's framing this story in a sense that's really going to be a dagger to David's heart when you get to the punchline. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So once again, this is, this is where the story is taking that turn, where the rich man has taken the little baby ewe lamb from the poor person, selfishly, totally selfishly. And David buys into this. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he said he did such a thing and had no pity. David still is a moral person. He is still a man of God. He still knows what is right and wrong and his heart is pulled in the right direction here. And this has set the trap for him because Nathan says to him, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house 
because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Busted. The mask is pulled off and it's revealed that the killer is David. He is laid bare out in the open. There is no hiding it now. Cuts him right to the heart. Said everything that happened. Nathan, being the voice of God, has called out everything that David has done. This is what the Lord says, continuing to David. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And this is brutal, right? Uh, and I, I don't know exactly how to justify God's punishment in this story, to be honest, because rather than punishing David, he's punishing David's wives. Um, it's it's a pretty harsh thing. It's hard to, for us to grasp, I think, um, what life was like back then, because it's really awful to think in terms of women as property. But that's really how the Jewish people thought at the time. And I, I think that's terrible and awful. I'm so glad that by the time Jesus comes around, Jesus sees women as equals and um, starts to move the people of God into a direction of seeing uh, people not as male or female, but as, as equals. And he gives women places of prominence in the church and other things as well. Um, he gives them dignity and honor and doesn't treat them as, as property or objects. But unfortunately in this story, Bathsheba is really treated as an object. And this is an object that David has stolen from Uriah. And it's fascinating that throughout the story, Bathsheba's name is not even mentioned really anymore. It's just, she's just referred to as the woman or the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And even after Uriah is, is dead, she's referred to as the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And the reason for that is, is to really push into David's mind, you committed serious theft here. You stole from somebody and you killed them for it. And um, yeah. And this line here is, I think is very important. At the end there, he says, you, in the middle, sorry, of this section here, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. David did things secretly and tried to cover it up and get away with it. But now God's punishment is going to be completely visible and everyone's going to know what happened. Now David has a choice in this moment. How is he going to respond when everything is laid barren out in the open? Well, I think that he responds in the way a man of God would respond. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. And this is just a tragedy because this child that was born to David and Bathsheba falls ill. God um, places an illness upon him. And David goes into mourning and weeping and fasting, praying for God to change the circumstances around and save the child. But God doesn't do it. And the child dies. And it's a real tragedy because even though David's sins have been forgiven, 
even though God has said, I have taken away your sin, there's still consequences. And that can be hard for us Christians to really grasp because we tend to think of, oh, Jesus paid it all. Jesus took away the, the, the price of my sin and put it on his own shoulders. But that's actually not totally true. And, and the reason I say that is because, okay, so Jesus died, right? Died for our sins, but still, we still have to go through the curse of death. All of us are all going to die at some point. We don't get to escape that, even though Jesus has forgiven us and set us free. We still have to face the consequences of our sins. And especially when there are consequences that affect other people, right? If I was to cheat on my wife and sleep with someone else and it came out in the open, I would have to face the consequences for that. I can't just say, please forgive me. And she would say, I forgive you. And we move on from that. No, trust is broken. We have to somehow gain that trust back again. We've also hurt somebody else that, that I slept with, if that's the case, right? There's consequences that happen. And think about the kids and think about the, the reputation in the community. Like all these things have consequences that ripple down to other people when we sin. It can be just simple things, even to, even when we steal something from the store or, or if we gossip about someone behind their back. We do these little sins sometimes and we think, oh, nobody knows about it. But then they ripple out and they affect other people. We can pray in private, God, forgive me of this. And God will say, I forgive you. I will uh, free you from this sin. But unfortunately, we still often have to face the consequences of our bad behavior. And especially, this is what happens with David. He faces this incredible situation. But thankfully, God is just and merciful. And he grants David and Bathsheba to have another son. And that son is Solomon. Solomon, who will be the next king after David. The one to lead the people of Israel into an even more incredible existence than David did as king. And Solomon will have kids, and those kids will have kids, and those kids will have kids. And eventually, is from that line that we get our Savior, Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of this terrible union of David and Bathsheba, a union that should never have happened. But yet God has this amazing, gracious, holy way of taking our terrible mistakes and somehow bringing good out of them. And out of this amazingly terrible mistake on David's part, this terrible abuse of power, this terrible rape that he's done, it leads to the birth of our Savior, the one who would ultimately forgive David later in life and establish him again. Now, one of the things that I want to talk about uh, from this passage as well, I, I brought up David had a choice to make I mean, throughout this thing, he had the choice to make, am I going to confess? Am I going to be honest? Am I going to be open about what I've done? And he keeps making the wrong decision and keeping things in secret. And then in this situation too, when it's all laid bare, David could still deny that this has happened. And actually, this is a common thing that happens in our world today. You go to any courtroom, any jail, I would guarantee you most of the people that are in jail would say they are not guilty. They didn't do it. I wasn't there. When the evidence is just stacked against them. And that's because that's just our human nature. We don't want to um, just be honest. We don't want to open up about the things that we've done. And the crazy thing is in, in, in our prison systems today, a lot of the people who have said that they're guilty actually aren't even guilty because they've said that just to get a, a lighter sentence than they would have gotten if they would have pled not guilty, which is a whole other topic on its own. I'm not going to totally go there right now. But I just want to say, 
that in the midst of these situations where we're faced with the choice, am I going to be open and honest about what I've done wrong? Or am I going to keep it a secret? Our natural human tendency is to keep it secret, to not let anyone know about what's going on, even when the facts are so blatantly obvious. But the amazing thing is when the Holy Spirit gets into our lives, he can open up our hearts to finally take ownership for what we've done. And that's what happens with David. And as a result of this, David is restored as king. Yes, there's consequences, but he's in a much better place now than he was if he would have kept things secret. Now, there's this, um, this idea that I came across a long time ago that's really helped me to understand how to respond uh, when it comes to conflict. How to respond when it comes to being open and honest about things that I've done wrong or, or when I need to say something to somebody else who has hurt me. And this is from a book um, by Bill Hybels called Honest to God. And it's kind of awkward that I'm bringing up Bill Hybels because he's kind of had his own King David moment where he's done some inappropriate things with women that were not his wife. And um, he hasn't, as far as I know, really come clean about what he's done, even though there's been mounting evidence against him. But he does have this really good thing, and I wish that he would kind of take a hold of his own teachings here. But anyways, this is one of his teachings in that book, Honest to God. And it's about trying to move from artificial community to authentic community. And the only way that that happens is when you go through the tunnel of chaos. So when we live in an artificial community, we, we all have problems with other people. We all have issues with other people, but we, for the most part, just keep it to ourselves. We don't say anything. We don't call people out on their garbage. We, we don't, we just keep it to ourselves, keep the peace. And a lot of churches have that. You know, you don't say anything bad about somebody else. You just, you know, if you see something off, you just kind of skirt around it or walk away, don't say anything. But what Bill Hybels is talking about, once again, I wish he would embrace it himself, is this idea of, entering into the tunnel of chaos and being willing to have those hard conversations where either you confront somebody on something or you allow them to confront you and you open up about something that you've done wrong. What happens is when you go through the tunnel of chaos, it is awful. It is not fun at all. It is like David and Nathan. Nathan entered into the tunnel of chaos with David and it was not a fun experience and things did not go very well in there. But the result is authentic community at the end. And that is where Nathan was leading David to, to be open and honest and in the light. But they had to go through the tunnel of chaos first before they could get to that spot. And thankfully, like I said, David was willing to be open and honest and go through the tunnel of chaos rather than reject it. Now, one of the things that Bill Hybels talks about in his book is that actually we will all have to go through that tunnel of chaos at some point. Now, the longer we put it off, the more painful it's going to be. Just think about David. If he would have just been open and honest with Uriah right from the beginning after he heard that Bathsheba was pregnant. If he would have just gone to him and said, I've done this awful thing. This is my baby. Think about how that would have just, it would not have been fun. It would have been painful. It would have been difficult. But Uriah wouldn't be dead. You know, Bathsheba's honor could still be restored. The child would probably still be alive. But instead, David put off the tunnel of chaos and said, I'm not going to go in there. 
And then when all this stuff happened with Uriah, where Uriah refused to sleep with his wife, and then there's a chance there, once again, to go into the tunnel of chaos and face the difficult conversations and lead to healing and authentic community. David instead avoids it. And what Heibel says is the longer you avoid going into the tunnel of chaos, the more painful it's going to be, the longer it's going to take to restore you. All these things are going to be awful. If you, if you feel like you're in a situation where you need to be honest with somebody or you need them to, to call you on something and if you face their, their being called, you know, these, these conflict situations, these times where you need to be open and honest, just get it over with. You know, pull the band-aid right off. Rip it off. Don't drag it out because you will have to go through it. And now you might think, okay, I've gone through it and nobody knows and years pass and nobody knows this dark secret that you've committed so long ago. One day you are going to stand before God on the day of judgment and you're going to have to go through the tunnel of chaos then. And it's not going to be fun. I guarantee you. But I want to say now, if you go through it now and get it over with now, it's going to be so much better. And I want you to... If you've got something in your life, I just want you to think, this is a question that I was asked a while ago that uh, at a youth conference when I was a youth pastor that, that really helped me frame it. And, and the question was from Francis Chan and he posed the question to us as the audience, what's the biggest lie that's in your life right now? I just want you to think about that. What is the biggest lie that is in your life right now? What he was getting at is, time to do something about it it's time to be open and honest with somebody about it and at that time I went to I had some things that I was going through I was not being honest with my work about and I went to another youth pastor friend of mine and I opened up to him about what I'd been doing and he was gracious to me forgave me and he gave me some suggestions and he really just walked me through the process of opening up to my work and coming clean on some things and getting through that tunnel of chaos so that I could be restored to authenticity and I could live in the light. I say this because you shouldn't, if, you, if you're feeling a pull on your heart right now to open up to somebody about something that's going on in your life, I just want to encourage you to pause and go and talk to somebody who's safe first. You know, talk to another pastor, talk to a pastor, talk to a, a close friend of yours who you trust, go see a counselor. You know, if you've done something really awful, you're going to need somebody to walk you through it so that what you say and do to other people are not going to be damaging to them. But instead, we want to go through the tunnel of chaos with health and with wholeness. I want to leave us with this verse from Ephesians 5, 8-14. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We all have those skeletons in our closet. We all have those dark corners that we don't want anyone to see or know about. But the fact is, if we keep them in the dark and secret, they will only fester and grow into ungodly things. They will be a stumbling block for us and a stumbling block for others. 
But look at what it says here. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. When we open, out, open up about our darkness, God can step in and restore us and then use that story of restoration to help other people. And also, if we've hurt other people, we open up about some of those ways we've hurt them, that can bring healing and light to them as well. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. But death and resurrection is not easy and painless. It involves dying so that Christ can raise us to new life. Well, blessings as you go from here. And I trust that uh, as, as the Spirit speaking to you about the things in your life that you need to to talk with someone else about it, I pray and hope that you find someone that is, is a safe person that you can confide in and someone that can give you some wisdom and how to proceed forward so that you can find healing and that you can bring healing to others who you maybe have hurt in the process. Go in God's blessing, I pray. Thank you.